Well, many of you know the name Steve Jobs, the, the founder and creator of Apple, who died of uh, cancer several years ago now, although I'm sure less and less people are going to know who he is over the course of time. That, that is how history works. Well, I just happened to see yesterday someone post the last words of Steve Jobs, uh, and I thought I'd read that to you as a fitting introduction to the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, Allegedly, these are his last words when he died at age 56. I have reached the pinnacle of success in business. In other people's eyes, my life is a success. However, aside from my work, I have had little joy. At the end of the day, wealth is just a fact I've gotten used to. Right now, lying on my hospital bed, reminiscing all my life, I realize that all the recognition and wealth I took so much pride in has faded and become meaningless in the face of imminent death. You can hire someone to drive your car or make money for you, but you can't hire someone to stand sick and die for you. Material things lost can be found again, but there is one thing that can never be found when it is lost. Life. Whatever stage of life we are currently at, in time we will face the day the curtain closes. And he goes on and gives his own take on uh, pursuing happiness, which we will learn even sadly for Steve Jobs and those that deny Christ. Even that pursuit of happiness will be vanity as well. And we're going to see that in Ecclesiastes. But Jobs said, you can't hire someone to stand sick for you and you can't hire someone to die for you. And what we're going to see today is that We need someone else who has stood in our place. We have a greater hope than what Steve ever had. But we can give all of our lives to the pursuit of health, wealth, and happiness. And without Christ, none of it matters at all. It is completely and entirely meaningless. And there will be, just as Job said, he had everything. The one thing he didn't have was joy. So we're going to turn to Ecclesiastes, which on the face level appears to be kind of a depressing book. It really undercuts all the things that we aspire for in life, whether it's the house or the job or the experience. It says all of that's vanity. None of that will give you lasting pleasure. None of it. It's a chasing after the wind. Life is completely and entirely meaningless from the viewpoint under the sun. And that's going to be a key phrase today, under the sun. Ecclesiastes is giving us a perspective, as it were, under the clouds. What, what is life like if that is all that there is? You know, for modern man, we live without the top story of our house. Modern man lives in an entirely materialistic age. So if you envision the world like a house, where under, under heaven is the first floor, and that heaven where God is, is the second floor. 
modern man has wiped out, has denied the existence of the top floor, of the upper story. And the writer of Ecclesiastes gives us that perspective. Okay, you want to live that way under the sun? This is the reality for you. But Ecclesiastes not only is going to undercut that, but it is going to give us hope. It reminds us of God, of the coming judgment, and how we should live in light of the vain life that we have, where we live and we die, where the rich man and the poor man suffer the same fate. And then at the end, we're going to turn to the New Testament and see how the New Testament picks up this idea of futility, but also gives us hope in the life to come through Christ. So that is where we will go this morning. I'm not going to read the overview on page 7 today, but I would encourage you to read that and you can study the passages that are contained there. We're going to look at Ecclesiastes in three parts today. In three parts. And the first part is this. Life is meaningless under the sun. Life is meaningless under the sun. And we're going to see this in chapters 1 to the first half of 6. So 1, 1 to 6, verse 6. Life is meaningless under the sun. So the book of Ecclesiastes is the work of two different contributors. There is uh, someone that scholars have called the editor, who places a frame around the whole book. And then there's someone who, uh, as the ESV puts it, is called the preacher. The preacher. So you have the editor and the preacher. And this word uh, for the preacher, it is a tough word to translate. The Hebrew is koheleth. I won't expect you to remember that. Koheleth. And it can mean a compiler or an assembler, uh, it connotes the idea of someone gathering people together. So that's why the ESV calls the Koheleth the preacher. The NIV uh, translates it as the teacher. This is the word that we get for ekklesia, which is the Greek word for the church, the assembly. So the, this Koheleth, this preacher, is gathering the people of God around to teach them something. And so the heart of Ecclesiastes are the words of this preacher, this teacher, this assembler. And then there's a frame, there's an introduction and a conclusion that's put together by the editor. The identity of both of these figures is uncertain. Uh, there, we, don't, we don't know anything like many of the Old Testament books who the human authors are with any certainty. While we do know with certainty that the ultimate author is God. So both the editor in his introduction in chapter 1, as well as the preachers, the first half of his message speaks to the vanity of all of life, the meaninglessness of everything. So we are going to look at that as well. If you just take a moment on page 7 and you note the brief literary outline, I want to just point this out to you, that in the editor's introduction, 
we're going to see that life is completely meaningless. And then in the first half of the preacher's message, 112 to 66, we're going to discover the same thing as the preacher tells of his journey for wisdom under the sun. So that's what we're going to look at in this first point, that life is meaningless under the sun. So we begin with the editor's introduction to the preacher's words. So please keep your Bibles open to Ecclesiastes. We're going to thumb through this text as we go along today. So the preacher or the editor begins, he says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. So the editor is telling us that these are the words of the preacher who is a son of David, king in Jerusalem. Evangelical scholars debate on whether these are Solomon's words or if there are a king or a wise person that comes later writing as if he was Solomon. Because we know that, and we've seen in our walk through the Bible series, the tragic reality that Solomon walks away from God at the end of his life. So there's a high likelihood that someone is writing in the wisdom genre as if he was Solomon, who had everything, but who lost it all in the end. So there's debates among evangelical scholars, whether it is Solomon or it was someone else. Really, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter because if God wanted us to know, he would tell us explicitly. And the words are true regardless. And what the editor says is that the preacher's main message is vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of of vanities, all is vanity. What is this word, vanity? This is the key word in the whole book, vanity. The Hebrew word is hevel, H-E-V-E-L, hevel. And literally, it means a breath. So you know if you go out on a cold, uh, a cold day, a wintry day, and you breathe, what happens? You see your breath Right? Just for a, for a moment, there's a mist or a fog, and then it's gone. That is our life. It is a breath. It's a vapor. That is the word the preacher is using to describe our lives under the sun. It's there, and it's gone. So, um, Bibles like the NIV have translated this word meaningless, 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 everything is meaningless. The ESV uses the word vanity. Um, but really, the, however you translate, it's this idea of transience, of things, it's here and then it's gone. You're here today, gone tomorrow. You are just a breath of vapor. That is the reality of everything under the sun. So that is how the editor introduces Ecclesiastes. And then in chapter 1, verse 12, we get into the preacher's journey for wisdom, for happiness, for joy in this life. And the preacher begins his message in verse 12 by saying, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out 
by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. All is vanity and a striving after the wind. Can you see the wind? No, you can't. You can feel the wind, but you can't see the wind. Can you ever catch the wind? No, you can't. Maybe a sail can catch it for a moment, but even that wind passes. The preacher is saying that all the pursuits, all the business of mankind is unhappiness. And it's like we're chasing the wind. It's complete vanity. And so the preacher is going to then go on and <clears throat> to talk about his journey for happiness under the sun. And that's why Solomon, whether he wrote these words or someone else wrote them in his place, makes so much sense. Because remember, Solomon had everything. He had He had the cattle on a thousand hills. He had a thousand women. He had everything, children, women, wealth, health, and he lost it all. But who better to talk about the vanity of everything than someone who's had everything? It's like Steve Jobs, who was a millionaire, said the one thing I didn't have was joy. So the preacher is going to go on a quest, and he'll take us on a quest in this book. And he begins with wisdom. Is is the wise, happy life, the good life, the one where you seek knowledge and insight and intellect? And the preacher found that that was vanity. He says in chapter 1, verse 17, And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. There's something to be said about the innocence of the gullible and not being vexed. The more you know the more you see things ain't the way they're supposed to be. And it becomes a vexation and a burden of sorrow. Again, that's from the perspective, of course, under the sun. So then the preacher abandons the quest for wisdom and, well, how about self-indulgence? What if I give myself everything I want? Will that make me happy? And in chapter 2, verse 11 He says, then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there is nothing to be gained under the sun. His pursuit for pleasure was empty. He said, there's nothing that can be gained. Again, it's a striving after wind. You know, there's a lot of people today that their end game is pleasure. 
whatever kind of pleasure, whether it's sexual pleasure or material pleasure, experiential pleasure, that's their end game, whether they find it in art or sports or in relationships. And it's like if we just watch somebody standing outside here, just running, trying to catch the wind, striving after the wind. It's complete vanity. Complete and utter vanity, meaninglessness. It's frankly silly. It's as silly as watching someone run and try to catch the wind. So the preacher goes on then. Well, wisdom didn't work. Self-indulgence didn't work. How about, let's consider life itself. And he says in chapter 2, verse 16, For of the wise and of the fool there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. You know, uh, an evil person can live to a hundred years, and a righteous person can die in infancy, or die at age 20. And you can be the smartest person in the world, or the dumbest person in the world. You both are going, you both are dying. You're both returning to dust. And so in the preacher's quest, he's realizing my very life itself is vanity. It's transient. It's but a breath. So then he tries to pour his soul into work. What many people do today, workaholism. Will giving my whole life and sacrificing everything to my work give me some sense of meaning and value and uh, a sense of self-worth? And when the preacher says in chapter 2, verse 18, he says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool? Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. The preacher realized I can work as hard as I want, but you know what? I'm not going to be the one who enjoys it. The person who comes after me, they might be wise, but they might be a fool. But it's complete vanity. Why am I doing all of this? You know, it's an interesting reality that the grand, the grand majority of inheritances are lost in the second generation that the wealth acquired in one generation is completely used up by the second generation. So why are you giving your lives to amass this wealth that you'll never even be able to spend if all you are living for is life under the sun? It's a complete waste of time. It's a chasing after the wind. It is havel. It is a vapor. It is meaningless. So then the preacher then turns and gives us this interlude about how there's a time for everything under the sun. And then he returns to his pursuit of meaning in this life. And I'm not going to have time to unpack all of it today, but he's going to go on and talk about the vanity of injustice and then talk about the vanity of envy, of wanting what everyone else has. And then he'll go on the vanity of personal ambition, the vanity of power, 
talking about the king who is not remembered in the next generation, and then the vanity of riches and honor. In that closing part of of his journey, in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 6, he says, There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. That is like reading straight from what Steve Jobs said. He had everything, but he didn't have joy. God gave him wealth and riches and honor from the perspective under the sun. God did not give him the power to enjoy it. And as we're going to see, we're going to need a greater purpose. We need to know something above the sun to find joy. But I want to pause here just simply to say that even as Christians, it is so easy to fall into the trap of the worldly rat race, isn't it? I mean, if we're all honest with ourselves, we all have our pursuits that we like. The, uh, we have various hobbies. You know, I love photography. I love fishing, for example. And I know some of you guys love cars or love uh, traveling or different things. And uh, the, it's not that these things are bad in and of themselves. They are, in fact, gifts that God has given to us. But when we pursue those things as the end goal of life, which it's still easy for us as Christians to do, they bring no lasting happiness or joy. They, in fact, become a burden and a misery to us. We go in debt for things that we can't take with us. We burden ourselves. We sacrifice our children for success. We, you know, we sacrifice the real things of life in this rat race that the world says we need to follow for success. The, the devil's domain, as it were, is like a salesman. It's like a store. The salesman always produces, a, a good salesman makes you feel you're lacking something. So the first thing a salesman does is to create this desire for something it says you need. And then it comes along and says, I have this thing to fulfill it. But you know, if the salesman was honest, you'd never come back to the store and he'd go out of business. So he's going to keep creating a desire and a need for more things, more experiences, more pleasure, more material gain, bigger and bigger houses. But he's going to keep coming back. And your whole life will be wasted. You're going to give your whole life to the salesman. That's what the preacher found in his journey. Everything under the sun is havel. You know, we've talked about this word havel, said it, it can mean vapor, it can mean breath. Do you know how also the Old Testament translates it? The Old Testament also uses the word havel in reference to idols. I find that quite remarkable. You know, John Calvin said that the human heart is an idol-making factory. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the same word for breath, for meaningless, for vanity, 
also means idols. Was that not the very thing that led Solomon to abandon the Lord? The idols and the pagan worship of all the women that he surrounded himself with. But that's what we do when we place these things we're pursuing before God. They they become idols to us. And pursuing those things is as silly as the man running down the street trying to catch up with the wind. So let's not make ourselves a foolish spectacle by striving after wind. By living as if this life is all that there is, that there's no top story to our house. So then in the second half of the preacher's message, we turn then to wise counsel that he's given to us for how to live in this earthly life. So we've seen thus far in point one that life is meaningless under the sun. The second half of Ecclesiastes 6-7 to chapter 12 verse 14 will show us that wisdom is still better than folly under the sun. And in this section, we're going to get both the preacher's conclusion and then the editor's conclusion as well. The preacher's conclusion and then the editor's conclusion. So in chapter 6, at the end, the preacher says, chapter 6, verse 7, All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? So that is his conclusion. But then he turns to wisdom. And he says, for example, a good name is better than precious ointment. And the day of death, than the day of birth, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. And he will go on with a number of sayings, talking about the benefit of wisdom under the sun. But still in the second half, the second half of his writing, it's not very hopeful. He reminds us in chapter 9, for example, that death comes to us all. Death comes to us all. And he'll give us some counsel about enjoying the wife of your youth under the few days of your vain life that you have given you. He's not giving us a lot of, a lot of hope under the sun. He'll give some instruction about casting our bread upon the waters, about, uh, in chapter 12, about enjoying the days that God has given But he reminds us that, remember, that for all these things you will be judged. For example, in chapter 11, verse 9, the preacher says, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, 
and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. I want to just pause on this on this exhortation for a second. I, as a pastor, you have many, many people. I've had many, many people come and say, what is God's will for me? What should I do? Well, we're giving it right here. Follow your heart. That almost sounds like something the world's taken. Follow your heart. If you want to know what you should do, go the way of your heart. But then remember this. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. So if you want wisdom in this life under, from the perspective under the sun, follow your heart, but do it in a way with an eye that you know God's going to judge you for whatever you do. So choose wisely. Another thing that is a recurring theme in wisdom literature is moderation. Is moderation. Uh, in chapter 11, verse 10, he says, Remove vexation from your heart, and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. You know, the, in other places he talks about toiling and, and work in this, but there's something to be said for moderation in life. You know, the, in, in the, the world of economics, there's a, a term called the law, or a principle called the law of diminishing returns. The law of diminishing returns. Say, for example, uh, you love fountain pens. Okay, this sounds weird, but I'm kind of weird. I like fountain pens. Okay, it was actually a pastor who got me into fountain pens. Whether that's good or bad, I don't know. But I, lo- I love fountain pens, you know, and you can, you can kind of move up to like a certain level of fountain pen where it's like just the ultimate writing experience. It's fantastic. But then you can spend more and more and more Mercifully, I haven't. But you can spend more and more and more on pens with different materials and everything, but they write exactly the same. They give you no more pleasure. Okay, so like you can like invest a certain amount in a, a silly thing like a fountain pen, and you kind of you reach the pinnacle of your writing experience. But then if you want more and more, that... The, the benefits go down and down and down and down. There's a diminishing return for your investment. And that's so true. If you look through that vantage, whether you love to cook or you love to clean your house, <laughs> which I'm struggling with right now while Deborah's away, um, you know, it's a law of diminishing returns. You know, I clean, you know, you clean the kitchen, it's going to get messy again. Especially if a bunch of kids living in there. You know, you can dust all the corners, but the dust is going to come back. So I've tried this argument with my wife, which hasn't worked very well. But, you know, you, know, you just get the main stuff. That's good. You get maximum value for your input. But if you keep going, it, it just becomes vanity. That's my argument. That's, that's not worked with Deborah. But that's, that's life. And there's a principle of wisdom that, you know, enjoy the things God's given you. Enjoy your health. Enjoy the resources God's given you. But don't keep going and trying to squeeze every ounce out of those things because it's not going to give you more joy or more pleasure. Usually when you live outside of the frame of what is moderate and reasonable, you start having to make idols because you're sacrificing all the important things of life to try to squeeze that joy out of it.
So that is another principle of wisdom is moderation under the sun. But friends, the reality is, is that at the end, we all die. We all will return to dust. And that's how the preacher's message concludes. He says in chapter 12, Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come, and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened, and the clouds return after the rain, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble, and the strong men are bent, and the grinders cease, because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dimmed, and the doors on the street are shut, when the sound of the grinding is low, and one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high, and terrors in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails, because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets before the silver cord is snapped and the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern and the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. There's a beautiful poetic ending of the preacher's words here. It's like you're going down a stair step of youth and vitality and everything grows dim, dimmer and dimmer and dimmer and dimmer till dust we return. The editor comes in then and concludes the preacher's work by the reoccurring statement, Havel, Havel, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. In light of this, then, how does the editor who's compiled this work together tell us we should ultimately live in light of the sun? What is the conclusion that we need to get out of the preacher's experience for pleasure, for health, for wealth, and for happiness under the sun? And in chapter 12, verse 13, we get it. The editor writes, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So the editor is saying, look at, look at Solomon, look at the preacher, look at everything he had and how it became complete meaninglessness. How should we therefore live under the sun It's this way, fear God and keep his commandments. In this way, we're really given a hint to something above the sun. We're being reminded of God, that we're going to an eternal home, and God's going to bring everything into judgment. The Apostle Paul picks up this theme, and this is where we will end today with the third point, third and final point. Paul's going to show us that Christ gives us hope for meaningful lives under the sun. And I want to turn quickly to Romans chapter 8 for that. Christ gives us hope for meaningful lives under the sun. In chapter 8, which is a very famous passage in Romans, Paul alludes to Ecclesiastes. 
when he says that creation itself has been subjected to futility. This word futility is the same word that the Greek translation of the Old Testament uses to translate havel, this word in Ecclesiastes. So if you're reading the Greek Old Testament, which was the most widely used in the early church, which sometimes goes by the, uh, the, the phrase or acronym LXX, if you ever see that, it's the Greek Old Testament, it uses the same word havel in its Greek translation to meaning futility. And Paul says, speaking to Christians who are suffering, who are not experiencing health, wealth, and happiness from the perspective under the sun, he says in Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. Here's our word again. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to the corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And what Paul is showing us here is that all the groaning, all the vexation, you know, groaning is another way of talking about the vexation that the preacher has. All the sin and misery of this life, to use the words of the Westminster Catechism, finds its antidote on the day of resurrection. Paul talks about the creation (coughs) as if it was a person groaning under the bondage it's been placed under because of sin and the corruption that everything we have fades Our lives fade, we age, we get wrinkles, we return to dust. The things we have rust and rot and go away. We groan, creation groans under this corruption and this futility. But Paul also leaves with hope saying we're waiting that day. The day when we will be adopted as the children of God, which Paul says is the redemption of our bodies when we will be raised anew in glory. And the whole reason Paul's writing Romans is for the obedience of faith, that people would learn that the way to God is by faith in Christ. So the ultimate way of wisdom out of this life of vexation is Christ. It's faith in him. And it's the life of the Spirit. Paul will go on to talk about that in Romans and and elsewhere in his letters, living by the Spirit. If we want to escape vexation, we must follow Christ. Because he is the hope that will take us above the sun. Indeed, I could say to a new sun in the new creation, world without end. Amen.
So friends, I hope that you will abandon the quest for wealth and happiness and joy and worldly things because you will just end up like Steve Jobs even if the Lord grants that. He won't give you happiness with it. Life is a veil. But I will end with these words of Paul from 1 Corinthians 15. And as he exhorts the church in Corinth, I will exhort you with these words and close. Paul says, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So my exhortation and Paul's exhortation, if you want meaning and purpose and joy in your life, follow Christ and do your work as unto the Lord and for the Lord, whatever earthly vocation God has given you. Do it for the Lord and for his glory in your lives will be not spent in vain. Let's pray.